And tonight was operating on the campus of Missouri State University up in Missouri. And back in August of 2015, there was uh, a survey that was sent out over social media by the Campus Crusade for Christ, and what they wanted to do was for the students who were associated with the university to, to respond to the survey that was being done, and they wanted them to reply back the three words that they thought of that best described God in their mind. Three words that best described God. And so what happened was, or what they intended to do, what they did do, was the responses that they got, they put them in what we call a, a word cloud. Now, everybody's seen one of these things, and if you don't know what a word cloud is, it's called a weighted word cloud, I think is the, the actual uh, name for it. But, but whenever you use words, or whenever, you know, depending upon what data you put in, uh, the, the, the more uh, uses of a word, or the more weighted the data is, the larger the word becomes. And so you see some words that are turned up. Wikipedia is one. Uh, foundation dash one. This is just an example of a, of, a, of a word cloud, and it actually came off of the Wikipedia site. But uh, you see that there are a number of words that you can't even read. They are so small, but they had at least part of the data that was there. Now, this campus crusade for Christ and the words that they had given back to them and the responses that were given, they put it on a, a word cloud. And I know you're not going to be able to see this, but it's an actual picture of the word cloud that they uh, put up. Now, what I want you to notice and what I want you to focus on is the word right in the middle. Probably the biggest word on there. It's the word fake. Remember now, they're asking the three words that the students best thought described God. And the biggest one is fake. Now, I actually was able to pull this up and pull some of the information up from an atheistic website. And when we were looking, when I was looking at it and researching this thing out as best I could, uh, on the atheistic website they made some comments about this. And their comments were such as, well, I guess they didn't get what they were expecting. Or I guess they probably should have thought ahead. You know, if you're going to be having these things done, they, some of the commenters gave uh, quotes as, in, as if you were in court, never ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. Now, I say that to say this. From the atheistic website, it seems that they thought that the people would be surprised at what they found. They thought they would be surprised at what people said about God. That was not the case at all. It wasn't the fact that they were surprised at what people said. You know, they didn't think that they were going to get all uh, information back that was just glowing reviews of God. And so the atheists were wrong again. You know, they're wrong about not being a God anyway, but they were wrong in this case as well. It wasn't that. They just wanted a real response. They wanted people to tell what they really felt about God. You know, as I think about that, even though the answers were wrong, it's not surprising that many people feel that God is fake. 
It's really not surprising some of the things, some of the words that you would see up there, depending upon who was responding. They're not surprising. We live in a society today that is, that's not one that's really God-centered anymore, is it? But unlike the information that was returned, the data that was returned to Missouri State University Campus Crusade for Christ, there's a very different God that's presented to us in the book of Joshua. And tonight we want to spend just a few minutes talking about the God of Joshua. We'll focus primarily on one verse tonight. We'll mention two, but one will be near the end. The focus will be on verse number 10. Genesis, or rather Joshua chapter 3 at verse number 10. Then the Bible says these words, and you, you remember now, we've been studying from the book of Joshua chapter 3 for several weeks. We've been looking at different things here, but Joshua chapter 3 verse 10 is interesting. Joshua said, Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Now what do you see in there about the God of Joshua? Tonight we'll look at two things in particular that we want to focus on from this passage, but as we begin our focus on verse number 10, how many of you remember years ago, some five decades ago now, there was a thing that was passed around and it was in the news and all kinds of things were said about it. I have actual uh, uh, newspaper articles that, that were in my granddad's files that said God is dead. God is dead. You know, when you think about that statement that was made again by atheistic kind of people, people who, who are really trying to suppress the truth as uh, uh, Matt put this morning into his lesson, when you say, when you make a statement, God is dead, I want you to understand that it acknowledges at least two things. Number one, it acknowledges God. That at least there had to be a God at some time or another. Number two, it acknowledges that God was at some point alive. And so if you're willing to say that God is alive, you have already said God. You have already acknowledged the existence of God. And if you're going to say that God is dead, then you have to acknowledge that at some point God was alive. Now, their premise that God is dead is wrong. And as you look back there in the book of Joshua, chapter 3, at verse number 10, remember what the Bible said in Joshua, chapter 3, at verse number 10. When you look at that passage, the Bible speaks about the, the God of Joshua being the living God. When you go back there, he speaks about the living God is among you. The living God is among you. There are a number of passages tonight, some 28 of them, that use the word living to modify the word God. Now, I'm not going to spend time tonight looking at each and every one of those, all 28 of them that's used that way from the English Standard Version, but there are a few that I do want to call to your attention tonight. I want you to think about what the Bible says, Psalm 42, verse number 2, My soul thirsts for the living God. For the living God. The psalmist says, My soul thirsts 
for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? Now, we could spend a lot of time dealing with that. We could make a whole sermon off of this one verse tonight. My soul thirsts for the living God. That's what we're focusing on tonight. He's not dead. He's alive in the psalmist eyes. And he can't wait to come and worship him. How many, how many of us were that eager to get here tonight? That eager to get here this morning? Now, I realize that sometimes on Sunday night there are those who are sick, those who are older, who are on up in years, that can't get out. We're not talking about that. And many of those folks are more like the psalmist than, than we are, even though they can't be here tonight. They're so thirst. There, was, there would be no other place that they would rather be than right here with us tonight. They're so thirst. When will our soul thirst for that living God? Notice another passage, Matthew chapter 16, verse number 16. You remember the confession that Peter made when Jesus asked, Do the men say that I am? They said, well, you know, they brought out all those names. Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? Peter replied and said these words in verse number 16, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. The living God. Acts chapter 14, verse number 15 Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God. The living God. Look at another one, Romans chapter 9, verse 26. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. That's a prophecy from one of the minor prophets that's spoken about in the book of Romans chapter 9 at verse 26. But what I want us to see tonight is over and over and over again, God is not described as just God. God is described as the living God. How do we behave ourselves in the church? Think about what Paul said, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. God, he is alive. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Uh, again, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, and verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Over and over and over and over again. 28 times in English Standard Version, the word living is used to modify the word God. The living God. Watch this one, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Folks, God, He is alive. We sing that song sometimes, our God, He is alive. And folks, we need to remember that. God, He is alive. Somebody says, well, He was alive when the Bible was written. And, and it's like they said in the, in the 50s, maybe He was alive then, but, but maybe now God is dead. Maybe He did die. No, God is eternal. 
God is eternal. Look at a passage in Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. And in verse 25, which is not on the screen, the Apostle Paul said, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of mystery, that, uh, the mystery that was kept, through, uh, kept secret for, a long, uh, for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Eternal. What does that word mean? Eternal God. What does it mean? If you had to describe eternity, how would you do it? In your mind. If you were the preacher tonight, and you had to describe eternity, how would you do it? I'm not sure that I can adequately describe eternity. Because everything I know, everything I have ever observed, is based on time. Everything I have ever experienced in life is based on time. It has a starting point. It has an ending point. But God is eternal. That living God that is mentioned numerous times in Scripture is eternal. Now watch this one. It's found again in the New Testament another other passage of Scripture. Uh, well, actually, uh, Psalm 90, verse 2 uh, that we'll talk about. Notice what the psalmist says. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, your God. It was interesting this past week while I was at Faulkner University, Brother Nathan Franson, and I've known Nathan now for several years. He's spoken at Polishing the Pulpit, but he was there to speak at uh, Faulkner, and his topic was why I left the Mormon church. Some of the things that that uh, caused him to leave the Mormon faith. He, he was raised in the Mormon church, raised in Utah, in the heart of Mormon territory. Now he's a gospel preacher, preaches in Kissimmee, Florida. What caused you to leave? Now, he does a seminar on why he left the Mormon church, and it lasts for several, you know, several sessions, several nights or days or whatever, you know, whenever they decide to do it. But he... He mentioned some of the most important things that caused him to leave the Mormon church. He put one of the things on the screen, and I, I haven't reproduced it, and I'm not sure that I can even say it in the same words that he said. But Nathan talked about the fact that, that it appears that we would believe the same thing that, at least in some cases, the Mormons believe. And one of those things is they believe that Elohim is the eternal God. Nathan then said, be careful. Be careful and define your terms. I did not know this, hadn't recognized this. I've heard Nathan speak on this same topic before, but he said one of the reasons that he left the Mormon church is because they had a hard time explaining to him their doctrine regarding the eternal God. What do you mean by that? Well, simply this. 
they believed that, that God, though they call him eternal, was created. At some point, he was a created being, and eventually he became a God. Nathan said, back in my 20s, he said, I didn't really know a whole lot about the Bible other than what I'd been taught. But what I did know about it made me question what they were teaching. And there were a number of other things that he dealt with. I don't have time tonight and don't know that I could deal with them adequately. But he says, as I was thinking about that term eternal, I asked, what does it mean? How, how do you describe that eternal God? And he got such answers as, oh, don't worry about it. Eternal. If he's eternal, that means he lived as long that way as he did that way. And yet, you say he had a starting point. That's not what the Bible says. And he says, I didn't know many verses, but I read this one in Psalm 90 at verse 2. Before the world was ever created, from everlasting to everlasting, well, let's get that at last everlasting first. God is eternal. He keeps going, he keeps going, he keeps going, he keeps going. There's no end to him. But that same eternal God was forever in that direction as far as he is in this direction. He had no end, but he had no beginning. No, God is not dead. He is the living God. He was alive when the scriptures were written. He was alive before that, before even the world was created. He's alive today and he'll be alive to the everlasting. To the everlasting. We need to remember that. It's important to us. And sometimes when we see these terms, and I thought it was sort of ironic that he would preach that lesson, and I already had mine planned for this one, you know, and I already started working on it. It was sort of ironic because, you know, even though we take it for granted that God is alive, we teach it every Sunday, that God is eternal, there are masses of people who are being taught wrong. Not just people, religious people. Good, moral people who are being taught wrong in relation to God. If you talk to Nathan, one of the things that he would suggest to you, if there are Mormons that come to your house and they want to study with you, study about the eternal God with them. Help them to understand the false concept that they have in regard to the eternality of God. Folks, it's not something that, that we just need to talk about and mention and say, hey, that's a good idea that, that there's an eternal God. We need to understand it. We need to grasp it as best we can because people are starving 
Their soul should be thirsting for that living God because one day, if they're unfaithful to Him, if they have not obeyed Him, they will fall into the hands of that living God and He will still be there. And so tonight, as we think about Joshua's God, it's important for us just in a simple statement that he made there in verse number 10 to recognize the fact that Joshua called him the living God. There's something else that I want you to see tonight in the few minutes that we have remaining from the book of Joshua, chapter 3 at verse number 10. Thinking about the God of Joshua tonight, look at what he says, and Joshua said, Here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Notice those words that I have not only in yellow, but I have underlined, without fail. What's the point tonight as we look at the God of Joshua? He will without fail. There are some things in this life that we can count on to fail. People will fail us, won't they? They disappoint us, they fail us, you know. They do things that that they ought not do. They do things to us that they ought not do. talked about some of that a couple of weeks ago. When friends are not friendly, people will fail us. What about riches? Will they fail us? Heard about a gentleman yesterday who had lost everything that he had. Now, it's unfortunate because of the lifestyle. The lifestyle is what caused that. But riches fail us. What if the stock market crashed tomorrow? You know, that was a thought back in 1929. People watched that thing. If you remember, was it 1987 or so when they had, was it Black Monday they called it? And they had a huge drop. And I don't mean this to sound irreverent or anything, but there were people who started dropping. What do you mean by that? They started jumping out of the windows of office buildings because they had lost everything. Riches fail us. You know, we can go down the list. I've got several things here. Health fails us, doesn't it? Don't we get sick? If we're diagnosed with cancer or we're diagnosed with some other dreaded disease, our health fails, and we don't even have to be diagnosed with one of those kinds of things. We just age. And our body deteriorates. Things that didn't used to hurt do now. Things that that used to work well don't work like they used to anymore. Our health fails us. Beauty fails us. We fail ourselves even. Human ability can only take us so far in life. I want you to understand tonight, God never fails. God never fails. Think about that. God 
never fails. Just like that statement, the living God, this is important. God never fails. And we're looking at what he said in chapter number 3. Okay, He talks about that God without fail. Go to another passage, Joshua chapter 21, verse 45, same book, just toward the end of the book. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All had come to pass. Not one word had failed. You take all the phrases out from in between it that modify it. Not one word had failed. Look at another one, Joshua 23, verse 14, even farther into the chapter, and now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. You know, and your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord, your God, promised concerning you. All of them have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. That is so important. Notice the words of the psalmist. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Everything that I have in this life, things that are most important to me in this life, they may fail me. People may fail me. Riches may fail me. Health may fail me. Beauty may fail me. I may fail myself. And you can add to that whatever you want to put on that list. But my flesh and my heart may fail. But God, He's my portion And I think this is important because of what we talked about in our first point. How long is it that God will never fail us and will never fail? He's my portion forever. God is alive. God is eternal. God never fails. And God will never, ever fail. I sort of proud of myself when I thought of this one. From the end to the amen, God never fails. What do you mean by that? In the beginning, God created. In. The last word in the book of Revelation, amen. From the first word in Genesis to the last word, in Revelation. God, those words have never failed and God has never failed. From the end to the amen, God never fails. How many of you have heard of premillennialism? You may know it better by its more common name, the thousand-year reign. 
You know, you hear people talk about Christ is coming back to the earth and He's going to reign on earth for a thousand years and He's going to establish His kingdom and He'll be here for a thousand years and we'll reign with Him for a thousand years. You know, one of the fallacies of that, that very way of thinking, that, that doctrine that's so prominently taught it's been portrayed in movies and, and people have fallen hook, line, and sinker for it. One of the fallacies of that argument is pointed out because it's based on the premise that God failed. Think about that for a minute. It's based on the premise God failed. What do you mean? Well, the doctrine is Jesus came to establish his kingdom when he came the first time. And he didn't expect the opposition that he got. He didn't expect the Jews to reject him, but they did. And because they rejected him, he had to go to plan B. He failed the first time. Wait a minute. I'm learning tonight about a God who never fails. Did God fail in setting up his kingdom? And we could spend a long time pointing to passages in the Old Testament that make it very clear God didn't fail. He didn't fail in his kingdom. He did establish his kingdom when Christ came the first time. Passages in the New Testament make that clear. John said he was in the kingdom. Paul wrote that we had been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. He didn't fail. But how many hundreds of thousands of good, honest people Believe in the thousand year reign. Christ is coming back to the earth to reign for a thousand years. But how many of those hundreds of thousands of people realize that it's based on the premise God failed the first time? Not one word, Joshua said, of what God did failed. The psalmist said, My heart may fail, everything may fail me. But God, He's my portion. He never fails and will never fail me. The Bible points out the fact that God's Word, when it is sent out, it will accomplish what He intends for it to accomplish. It will not return to Him void, Isaiah wrote. God never fails. From the end to the amen, God never fails. Fails. I said we'd focus primarily on chapter 3, verse number 10, but let me call your attention to verse number 11, and then the lesson will be yours. Very next verse, after speaking about God, the living God who had not failed, or the things that had, that had been promised had not failed, the very next verse says, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth 
is passing over before you into the Jordan. We've talked about that already. We've seen the, uh, a portion of the raging of the River Jordan. You know, if you were here a couple of two, three weeks ago when we put that on the screen, you know, just left it playing. And, and, and God caused water like that. They were at flood stage at that time. He caused water like that to stop, build up 20 miles away. But what's the point that I want us to make tonight? What we really need to be doing is getting ourselves behind the God who never fails and following Him. That's what He's telling the people here in Genesis, or Joshua chapter 3. He's giving them instructions that they are to follow. We talked about, I guess it was last Sunday night, that they were to follow. He gave them the distance and they, we, you know, we talked about the holiness of God and all those kinds of things. But, but we really need to get behind that God who never fails because He's always going to accomplish the things that He has set out to do. There are a lot of people in our world who refuse to get behind Him. They refuse to follow Him whether it be from excuses that they've made in their own life that, that they don't think that they can or, or, or they would just rather not or some who perhaps even don't even believe in him or at least claim that they don't. Some people don't get behind that God, but we do. We need to. We as the Lord's church need to get behind God. Be willing to follow him into the raging water if that's what he tells us to do, and allow him to not only lead the way, but to provide the way through the water. We depend sometimes too much on ourselves. But folks, guess what? We fail. God doesn't. Why do we not get behind God? as individuals in our own lives, sometimes as congregations, why do we not get behind the God and go forward, press on, and make sure that we're doing everything that we can to win souls for Him and everything that we can to let other people know about this living God and that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of that living God? Why do we not do that? Is it because... Number one, that we do not believe that he's alive. Joshua's God was a living God. He believed that that living God was capable of doing anything that he needed to do. And so why do we not get behind him? Is, is it because we don't believe that he's alive? I don't believe that. If it, that was the case, then why would you be here tonight? So I don't think it's because we don't believe that he's alive. Well, could it be that we don't believe that he's powerful enough to never fail? And I think that may be the crux of the matter. We hear it. We read about it in Scripture that he didn't, that he never failed, that he was capable of stopping the water so that the people could cross on dry land. He was capable of doing all those things. Do we not believe he's powerful enough to never fail in our day?
If we don't believe that, then we don't believe his promise or it doesn't really mean anything to us when he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. The promise of him saying that he will provide a way of escape for us doesn't really mean anything and so we don't look for that way of escape because we really didn't think it was there because perhaps God wasn't powerful enough in my case to make the way of escape. And you can apply that in any number of ways tonight. But the key is number one, we have to believe that he's alive. Number two, we have to believe that he is not going to fail. That he does have the power to accomplish whatever it is he instructs us to do, whatever it is he wants done in this life. He has the power to make that possible. You see, I want the God of Joshua to be my God. That's who I want to identify as my God. And I would have, if somebody asked me to have three words that describe God, and they were going to put it on one of those word clouds, I'd have a lot of them that they could add to that list. But I know two of them that would definitely need to be on there. And that is... Alive and powerful, capable, able. I could go on and we'd get a whole list on there. The God of Joshua. Two simple verses in chapter number three, but they're, they lead us in such a wonderful way to think about that God who within just a matter of hours would allow them to go across, would allow them to go to that city of Jericho, to march around it, would allow the walls to fall down flat, would allow them to be able to conquer the land that he had promised them. And that will allow us to conquer the land that he's promised us. That land where his father lives, that we sing about, where our home should be with him for all eternity. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. We would beg and plead with you to turn to the living God Turn away from the vain things in your life, as Paul mentioned as one of the passages that we read tonight. Turn to the living God, to serve the living God, to worship the living God, so that you do not fall into the hands of the living God. He'll never fail you. With Him, you do not only have the hope of eternal life, but the promise of it. And you can be with him for eternity. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to put your Lord on in baptism. Maybe you're here and there's something that is standing between you and him that you need to make right in a public way.